The Kinky Cocktail Hour is brought to you by Motor Bunny, the world's most powerful saddle-style vibrator that offers fabulous creative sexual experiences. We use it and it rotates, it vibrates, and it delivers mind-blowing orgasms. Enjoy Motor Bunny as your favorite sex toy. When you order the Motor Bunny, multiple attachments are included along with the link controller, which allows wireless control from anywhere. Motor Bunny is the world's most powerful saddle-style vibrator on earth. Use the link in the show notes and spice up your sex life with a Motor Bunny. You're listening to Kinky Cocktail Hour, a conversation between adults about sex-forward relationships, kinky lifestyles, and frank communication. If you're under 18, please stop listening and visit scarletteen.com. I'm Lady Petra, and my pronouns are she, hers, and we. I'm Safa Master, and my pronouns are him, his, and we. And this is Kinky Cocktail Hour. Cheers! Cheers. Yes. Okay, what are we drinking today? So we're drinking Grand Teton's Brewing Company's uh, Sweetgrass Pale Ale. Okay. And it's an interesting beer because when I poured it, it had like this huge head that came out of it. Wow. I mean, like... like like it was four inches high. Holy cow. And I poured it really slowly, like carefully, but it's still... It's, it's headed right up. Yeah. Now, it's the ABV on this is six. Okay. And it's an 86 on the um, beer advocate. Oh, okay. So we'll see. Let's give it know, a whirl. What it tastes like. It's very golden. Yeah. It almost looks almost like a wheat beer because it's, it's it looks pretty, unfiltered. It's pretty opaque, yeah. yeah. Taste the hops. It's like fizzy hops to me. Yeah. Not fond of this. Yeah, and I think it's the the head was a dead giveaway that it was just so high fizz content. Mm-hmm. You know, they say hints of caramel, pine, green tea, herbal notes. I don't know if I get that. I don't get any of that. What I get is just pure hops. Well, I get a bready, hoppy yeah. type of flavor. Yeah, you know, what I, I, mean? I find this an unpleasant beer. Yeah, sorry. I wouldn't give it an eighty-six. No, I wouldn't either. I don't. There I are don't. beers we had like Bex, which is a fifty or a sixty that are better. Yeah, you yeah. know. So I, I um, what's neat is we're really finding we don't like the ones with high carbonation. No, uh-uh. the thing that I'm kind of surprised about is that I was under this misconception that mm-hmm. beer had a three percent alcohol volume on average, but it doesn't. Like most mm-hmm. of the beers we've had since we started this exercise are over four, and some of them as high as six. Yeah, and this is the brewing company is in Idaho. In Idaho, okay. Yeah, so Victor, Idaho. And you know the Grand Tetons are in but Yellowstone, right outside right next of, to any Yellowstone. Yeah, so it's right on the outside of it. Yeah. Well, not my favorite beer Mm-mm. so far. The Idaho Montana sort of factions of beer, not my favorite. Not my favorite. Like the California Oregon Washington beers. Yeah, we do. Yeah, I do. We do. Maybe it's just the water. Could be the water, but I think they're actually going for the hoppiness. Yeah. And they're I, going for the fizz. I mean, they're actually constructing it that way. Yeah. So no, I no, think that's I part that. of it. Yeah. You know, and, and if I talk about all the beers we're, we're tasting yeah. so far, the ales are okay. The English ale, the Boddington. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Okay. But as a class of beers, I much rather have a lager or a Pilsner. Pilsner. Hmm. 
No, I think that's right. I, I mean, did like the IPAs. The IPAs were interesting. You know, I think that out of all of the beers we've tried so far, my favorite are the German beers. Well, those Angers. Uh, the Anger, yeah. I love that brew. Two of them. Yeah. Were really, really, really good. Really good, yeah. Yeah. Excited to talk to Anya today. Yes. Because as we've discovered over the last couple of years podcasting, mm-hmm. this topic of the female-led relationship is a very super popular popular topic. Yeah, yeah, super popular. And you know, we learned the other day, just looking into the data ourselves, that <laughs> there's something like a forty to one ratio of submissive men to dominant women. dominant women. Yeah. So you know, dominant women place to be. Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> Anya, welcome to the conversation. Wow, thank you so much. I actually, I, I agree with you completely that it's it's a great place to be as a dominant woman. Yeah, well, you know, we ordinarily begin our conversation with you by inviting you to share your journey in sexuality. So just tell us your story, like how you grew up and where you grew up and as a sexual creature, how you ended up in a female-led relationship. Absolutely. And it is it is a journey, right? We all have one. And I think that it is those early years that really inform so much of where we will be going later in life. For me, I started out life in a very kind of traditional family situation, family container in the Midwest. I grew up in a very, very small town in the heart of the Midwest. It was a very religious town. And my family was an incredibly religious family within this religious town in the Bible Belt. And, you know, growing up as a sexual being, I don't think I understood that that was something that I had the right to explore or embrace for sure. So I grew up probably as many religious Midwestern people do, pretty repressed when it comes to my sexuality. So I think, you know, I was aware, of course, that my body, you know, was mine and that, you know, I had private parts and things like that. But there was not a lot of conversation around exploring my body or, you know, what different aspects of ourselves could feel like. And when I hit puberty, I discovered pretty quickly that I was a sexual being and that I really enjoyed being recognized as a sexual being, but then of course feeling incredibly filled with shame around that because of the upbringing that I had, right? So being in a very traditional religious environment, I didn't think that it was okay for me to be exploring these things. And I remember the earliest, God, I'm trying to remember what age it was, but even the first time I was home from school alone. So I was old enough that my mom didn't stay home from work to be with me when I wasn't feeling well. So I must have probably been at least 12 or 13. And I'm guessing that I knew nobody was going to be home and it was safe. And I remember finding myself exploring my body when I was laying on the couch with a blanket over me, just like praying that nobody came home. And I was able to kind of bring myself to 
I'm assuming, you know, it, it's hard to remember back that far, but I remember having an incredibly sensational experience and I had no idea that my body was capable of feeling that good or, you know, and I'm assuming what I did was brought myself to orgasm and didn't even know it. So feeling super dirty about that and hiding under the covers in my bed for the next few years, exploring myself, it was just self-exploration. And then, you know, when I started to enter into relationships, it started developing into obviously more of a sexual dynamic with, with my boyfriends at the time. And I do recall too, having growing up in such a small town and conservative environment that the first time that I had sex with my boyfriend, I was... I believe I was a senior in high school and we had been sexual in that relationship prior to just like intercourse and penetration. But I remember the first time that happened, I remember it being a pretty traumatic experience and don't need to kind of get into all of that in this particular moment, but it was traumatic for multiple reasons. And one of those was which I knew that I was actually getting baptized the next day at church. And I felt like I was going to hell and getting baptized all at the same time because I had, for all sense and purposes, did what I thought was like the ultimate sin, you know, forget committing murder. I'd had sex. So that was kind of kind of an effed up way to introduce myself to my own sexuality. And from that point on, I went through what would probably have just been the very traditional steps in life of boyfriend, dating, breakup, boyfriend, dating, breakup. I had sex with a handful of my boyfriends. And then I ended up getting married at a pretty young age. And I had a very, very vanilla relationship with my now ex-husband. We did not have an incredibly explosive sex life. It was relatively non-existent for the most part. I think we both had grown up so repressed that we didn't really know how to explore that with one another. And we didn't feel comfortable talking about it with one another. And at the end of the day, our relationship went by the wayside, largely because of that. He ended up finding comfort and connection with other women outside of our marriage. That destroyed me and made me feel all sorts of shameful feelings. And our marriage didn't survive. And I would say that it was upon our divorce and me kind of stepping into myself as a single woman post-marriage that I finally started to have my sexual awakening. I started playing with partners and learning what my body responded to and really embracing my sexuality and really embracing the fact that for all intents and purposes, I find myself to be a sacred slut. And it was something that I embraced and wanted to enjoy. And then I fast forward to the point where I met my now husband. And when we started our relationship, it started out also incredibly vanilla, very sexual in nature. We were both very sexual beings, really enjoyed that exploration. But a year and a half into our marriage, he approached me with this concept of a female-led relationship and cuckolding and hot wifing. And that is what led me to where I am today. So in a nutshell, that's my that's my journey to the point where I have stepped into this lifestyle. That's amazing. That's just a wonderful share because, I mean, we've all gone through that exploration of our younger selves and everyone's path a little different, but it's amazing how we are looking out onto society and we see 
what is is supposedly expected of us based on how we were raised or the community we're in. And then we put a lot of self-shame. I think that's the most powerful shaming that we do to ourselves is the self-shaming. And it's just powerful you shared that. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I couldn't agree more, Lady Petra. I think that we do a lot of self-shaming. And that is something that I'm incredibly passionate about working within, within this lifestyle, right? There are just, there's so many containers, so many iterations of what people are exploring, what their sexual desires are, what their proclivities are. And we build up so many walls and so much shame around them that in order to give ourselves permission to free that part of ourselves and to really embrace it, it can be a lifelong experience. And I'm just, I'm super passionate about becoming an advocate for people doing that unshaming earlier and earlier to the point where hopefully we can start to create generations of people who don't need to be unshamed because they've been able to embrace that part of themselves from the beginning. So I love that you said that. Good legacy. Yeah, one of the things that's really common in our conversations is just the role that religion has in creating this sense of sexual repression. That said, I am curious about how that conversation went with your present husband that led to this female-led relationship, how that impacted you. Like, What was your experience of yourself in that conversation? <laughs> that is such a great question. So I would say that the first time he brought it up, I have since learned that the word for what my kind of experience has been in terms of accepting my own identity is that I have suffered from a Madonna whore complex my whole entire life. And so when my husband first brought the concept of FLR and cuckolding and hot wifing and all of that up to me, my first gut response was as the Madonna saying, oh my God, no, I, I'm a mother, I'm a wife. How could you ever assault my sensibilities around being this sacred mother figure? And I could never do that. I can only live within a monogamous construct. My first marriage ended because of non-monogamy and it was not ethical and or consensual. And how could you think that I would be interested in this? So I've told this story before on other podcasts, but we are both lawyers, my husband and I. So when he first presented this concept to me, it came out... I mean, it had been a longer conversation, but what he presented me with so that I could wrap my mind around this was a legal contract that basically was a legal contract for a female-led relationship. So he sent it to me via email and I promptly redlined it back to him saying, okay, I definitely agree that I should be in charge and all of these things are great, but this concept of me being able to have sexual freedom, that's bullshit. I'm not going to consent to that because I could never do that to you. And so we went back and forth with legal comments to each other back and forth in this document. And by maybe the third round, I was like, all right, I'm starting to soften to this idea and I can actually see the benefit here. And, you know, I'm not really sure where along the way we've just been talking recently about how much my confidence and my own inner domination, dominance, dominatrix has come out over the last two and a half years that we've been in this lifestyle. But my first response was certainly not as an empowered 
feminist, which I always thought myself to be, my first response was, no, I could never. I'm a good girl. And we have really unpacked that Madonna whore complex in our marriage a lot over the last two and a half years so that my husband can also have access to that side of me that is the proud whore and the sacred slut that I consider myself to be. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that was kind of my initial response. And then over the last two and a half years, it's really changed quite a bit. Oh, that's fascinating. It is fascinating. I appreciate you sharing that. So the question that flows from there is how did you progress the dynamic from, okay, I'm going to take over as a sexual creature and the leader of this relationship to the next step? Did you go down a path of chastity? Did you go down a path or of discipline. finding a bull or did you implement a discipline-based dynamic? Like, What was the next step? So the next step for us was definitely more within the realm of the sexual freedom exploration. So we first started by exploring the idea of, yes, finding a bull. And What I would not recommend to anyone else getting into these types of dynamics is exactly what we did. And I would not recommend it because it's what we did. We went out and our frame of reference to find somebody was actually connecting with somebody that I had dated prior to meeting my husband. And as it turns out for us, that was not the right call. And I've talked to some other couples who did the same thing for whom that was not the right call. And it's just messy. But what it did teach us was that there are nuggets of this that we definitely want to keep exploring. So we continued to seek out and try to find additional male partners, single males that would be able to fit within our dynamic as a bowl. So that was the very first step for us was starting with the sexual freedom component. At the same time, actually, though, I will say I started to take over things within our home, things like finances and decision making around things within the home. And I will say that things like chastity and kind of domestic discipline came even a little bit later. Chastity, we started to play with, I would say maybe around six months into our dynamic, maybe a little bit earlier than that. And it was something that we did take fairly seriously once we stumbled upon it. But at first, I really, again, like the Madonna part of me came out and was like, no, I'm not locking up your dick. That's just not happening. I don't feel I don't feel good about that. I don't want to do that. I don't find that to be a turn on. And then the first chastity cage that came in the mail, I took one look at it and I was like, that is hot as hell. I can't wait to get you in that thing. And so chastity was something we took to pretty well, pretty early. And for the rest of the dynamics, I would say that we really still continue to find an ebb and flow in the FLR within our domestic life and within our domestic discipline. I would say it it really is an ebb and flow, both based on the fact that my husband is a really, he's a true alpha the vast majority of the time in his life. And he, as much, he loves my dominance. And when I'm willing to bring that forth, he's very responsive. But when I'm not super diligent about maintaining that dominance, then he kind of switches back into his alpha role very naturally. And so we do find ourselves a lot of time having to say, okay, we need to reset here and let's go back to what is it that we're wanting to do 
what are the areas of FLR that we feel passionate about? And oftentimes I'm wanting to reset so that I put myself back in a position of power a little bit more frequently. And when I do that, like I said, he responds accordingly. But we have to be pretty mindful of those dynamics, I would say, to keep them flowing. That's interesting. I'm curious to know, in the realm of your relationship, how it's progressed from where you started through the uh, chastity into the discipline. Like, where is it now? Like, what would you say drives the relationship right now? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. I would say what drives the relationship is largely my desire to really own my sexual power and my cuckold's desire for me to own my sexual power. So whatever that looks like, right? So I think that we really try to continue to pay a lot of attention to our dynamic. And I will say it's a very time intensive relationship container to be in because cuckolding is such an intellectual relationship that you have. It is a very mental and intellectual kind of, I don't want to say game that you play, but you really have to stay engaged in a very intense way, especially at least in our experience. My husband is an extreme intellect. And if I'm not constantly either responding to what he is putting out there energetically, or if I'm not trying to guide it, then we aren't living to our best in our dynamic. And so for us, it's a 24-7 dynamic that really has to be paid attention to in the little things, in the little ways. And so I would say what drives it the vast majority of the time these days is me accepting and expressing my sexual freedom and my desires to cuckold him. And I would say that for him, as long as I am doing that in any number of ways, whether I am, you know, disciplining him, whether I am paying attention to him through pegging or humiliation, whether I am making sure his chastity device is locked and loaded, whether I'm insisting that he is wearing panties under his garments. It's the more attention that I can make sure that he is giving to these things then our dynamic is very much in lockstep. But when we find that our dynamic is not in lockstep, it's because something has been slipping. So something has gotten very busy with the kids or with our work life, or one of us isn't feeling well. And it's very easy to find that the dynamic starts to slip then. So I would say it's very driven by our attention to it and feeding it and continually paying attention to one another's needs within it. So do you involve reclaiming sex? Like, does he have reclaiming sex with you if you've been with bulls or been out? Yeah. So we always, I personally don't like the term reclaim. I find it to be kind of antithetical to being an empowered woman. So for me, I really enjoy reconnection. And that is what we practice every single time that I'm out with a bull. And there are times that my cuck is with me when I play, but that has not been a dominant part of our dynamic. The vast majority of the time in the last two and a half years, at least, I have generally played alone and then come home and do a lot of reconnection with my cuck. So yes, that is a huge part of our dynamic. And within that reconnection period, sometimes there is 
you know, intercourse between us, but sometimes there isn't. And a lot of the time we play with the dynamic of me denying him intercourse. And sometimes we welcome it. And it's always at my desire. It's whatever I'm feeling. And if that's a connection point that I would like to have with him. And sometimes it is just exactly what I need. And it's a connection and it's pure, like just kind of marital connection between us in kind of a vanilla way. And then other times it's for the purpose of being able to take the cuckolding play a little bit further with regard to kind of humiliation speak or things like that when he is inside of me. So yeah, we absolutely make reconnection a priority in our relationship. It is something that I need. It is something that he needs. It is something that unless and until we have that, it really feels like the loop of an experience of a cuckolding experience has not been closed. So when it hangs out there, the longer it hangs out there, the more difficult it feels to kind of reconnect around it. So yeah, that's absolutely a big piece for us. Got it. The other question I have is, given that you have children, how do you manage the domestic discipline aspect of your dynamic? Right. (laughs) Generally, domestic discipline happens behind closed doors in our bedroom, for sure. We do enjoy things like spanking and slapping and... We enjoy dynamics of golden showers and things like that. Although what I will say, too, is some things that some folks might think of as domestic discipline are actually real acts of kind of love between us. So, you know, pegging, for example, some people might consider that to be part of their domestic discipline practice. But for us, domestic discipline is much more around things that might cut hates, right? So there are times that I can incorporate domestic discipline right in front of our children that they would never pick up on. And so a couple of examples of that would be if my cuck has done something that I disapprove of, I can force him to eat something very specific for dinner that he may not like. And the children might just think that he's trying to be health conscious that day because all he has is a plate of arugula, which he couldn't hate more. Or I might have him do chores for me that normally wouldn't be a part of his domestic routine. And so he can do those right under the kid's nose. And right now we're playing with some things where he has to ask my permission for a lot of things. Like he has expressed to me that he would like to get healthier and maybe lose some weight, things like that. And so we've implemented a rule where nothing can cross his lips unless he asks my permission for it other than water and black coffee, you know. And so anything else he has to ask my permission for, or if he wants to spend money, because he loves to spend money on me, but I find that he could take it to an excess. So I've put a rule in place that if he wants to order anything online or buy anything at a store, he has to ask my permission first. And then if that isn't followed, then of course there could be punishment that ensues from that. So I I would say there's, yeah, both. There's different ways that the kids may see it and not know it. And then there's things that happen behind our door that they would never be aware of. Got it. You talked about humiliation as well. And I always wonder if part of your dynamic involves cross-dressing, specification, anything like that? So humiliation is a really interesting topic for me within the cuckolding community. And I think I could be wrong about humiliation for others. But for my cuck and myself, humiliation, the power of humiliation comes from the fact that my husband and my cuckold want to see me as the most powerfully dominant bitch possible. 
And if I am living into that and I tell him to do something, there is nothing that both terrifies him and turns him on more than me telling him to do something. And so he gets a real charge out of it. But I think that sometimes humiliation within our community is seen as cuckolds being super self-deprecating or self-loathing and wanting to be treated in a manner that is just really demeaning to them. I always find it to be kind of like my cultural service announcement or my PSA when I'm talking to people about humiliation to make sure that we distinguish between what humiliation is about. And so for my cuckold, it's very much about me being a dominant bitch to him and showing him that I'm in charge and I don't care what the fuck he thinks. So in our personal dynamic, the way that humiliation is brought out is through our conversation. If we're being intimate and I can say whatever it is I want to him to make him, whether it's small penis humiliation or fluffing up somebody that I've just been with recently and how great their dick made me feel, I can do it that way. I do insist that my cuckold only wears what I would call manties, male panties that we buy specifically that fit him, unless we're going on a hike or doing something athletic, and then I'll allow him to wear a pair of men's boxer briefs or something like that. I wouldn't say we've taken sissification any further than that, but I'm not saying I wouldn't. I would say that for both of us, it would be less about a desire or, and certainly I love people embracing any kink, but for us, if I were to force that on him, it would more be because he is so masculine and he is so not the type that would typically find a lot of catharsis or anything in cross-dressing. And so for me, if I forced it, it would be purely because I want to show him that I'm in charge and that I can make him do this if I want. And I bet if I made him do that, I bet he would, I bet he would enjoy it, you know? And so I think other ways that it could play out, you know, there are times in our dynamic, we haven't really played much with bulls stepping into the humiliation ranks with my cuckold. But for myself, I have made, you know, my cuck when present with me with a bull, I have made him fluff a bull before. And that's certainly much more of a humiliation play for us in our dynamic. There are a lot of cuckolds out there for whom they might have bi tendencies or what we call cuckolding bi tendencies. And my husband, to my experience thus far, is not one of those. So the fact that I might make him fluff a bull is very much one of those dominant humiliation acts that he would submit to, but only because I'm demanding it of him. So that's how humiliation has played into our relationship thus far. Amazing. It really is amazing. It's really amazing. I'm curious, do you have a blog or some place where people might be able to track you down, reach you, interact with you? I don't currently have a blog, but it is something that is in the works. I'm going to be publishing, um, starting to publish my own podcast in the near future called Sexualchemy. And so that will have a blog associated with it and pages like that. But at the moment, just on Twitter is where I can probably be most easily connected with. I believe my username on Twitter is uh, goddess122217. And then my name on Twitter is goddess Anya. So that's probably the easiest place for people to find me right now. But soon there will be more. Well, we're definitely going to look out for your yeah. podcast. So thank you so much for coming on the Kinky Cocktail Hour, and we look forward to following up with you in the future. 
Oh my goodness. Thank you both so much, Saffer and Lady Petra. It's been a real honor to be on here and be able to talk a little bit about, you know, the container that I'm in. And I'm just fascinated by the work you guys are doing. And I am, am absolutely a huge fan of Kinky Cocktail Hour. So thank you. That's it for today. If you're interested in kinky relationship coaching, online domination, or if you'd like to sponsor the pod to keep it going, please visit our Patreon website at Lady Petra Playground. You can reach me via email at ladypetraplayground at gmail.com. Our music is composed and performed by Roger Ferguson, who can be found at rogerfergusonmusic.com. Till next time, cheers! Thank you.